For most of us, our ability to learn uh, is significantly enhanced when we're able to discuss what we're learning with other people. Uh, In fact, uh, as we have talked about quite a bit over the years here, theological development cannot take place in isolation. You have to interact with other people if you're going to learn. It's going to have to occur. It's going to have to be some give and take. And and I don't know about you. This is just the way I function. So much of the time, my best learning takes place when I'm thinking out loud. You know, I'll ask you, well, what do you think about such and such? And then I'll start talking about it. and, And it begins to take shape in my mind. Now, thinking out loud can get you into big trouble. As you know, I've that's happened to me a lot of times, and I'm sure it's happened to some of you. But the, but the need to talk about what we are learning is one of the reasons that God established before the, the elders here ever did, home groups. You see in the New Testament church, they met in large gatherings and they met in homes. And so people got together and they were able to talk about the truth of what was being uh, preached on Sunday mornings and at other times in that early church. Small groups that meet in informal settings are are just a great space for talking over the truth of the gospel. Uh, And and it's the way, excuse me, the way that our groups are currently structured. We're talking about what was said on Sunday morning. So if you're not in a home group, you want to think more deeply about what is being communicated here on Sunday morning, that's a good place to do it. Now, that doesn't mean you're free to say anything you want to, any way you want to in a home group. You know, you just should never do that. Let me give you a a clue. When you come to me and say, um, you're wrong about what you said, I'm just not, I'm not interested in that conversation. If you say, Look, I don't understand what you were saying, or I have a different take on that. I wanted to run this by you, see what you think. If you want to enter in a discussion, I'm happy about that. But if you just say you're wrong in what you said, then I'm, like I say, I I know where that conversation is going to end, and I'm just not interested in it. Because learning has to take place in in this community, not in some sort of a... I know something you don't know, and of course, I, I know you probably want to feel at times like that's, that's the way preachers uh, present themselves. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. But you know, in home groups, the discussion often, as it is designed to, flow freely, just flows freely. And so a lot of learning takes place in that kind of a setting. And, and, and a lot of times you hear people say, I disagree with that. I, I don't see it that way. And then you've got this discussion back and forth. Uh, last Sunday, a bit of discussion took place during our Sunday morning service. And I know you're aware of that if you were here. I, I'm going to guess that many of you, if, if not most of you, uh, have at times felt like you wanted to just do that. To stand up and say, look, I, I disagree with that. I, we all kind of are natured that way. We tend to want to say, look, look, I need to say something here. And um, so you can imagine how difficult that would have been for the people, a couple of people who did that last week, and and how strongly they must have have felt. Um, But the elders have decided in what 
we understand to be clearly biblical mandate, that Sunday morning is just not the place to do that. It's the place where Scripture is taught. And then if there's discussion that needs to take place, we'll, we'll do that um, in, in the home groups. Uh, or if you really disagree with something and you feel like you need to say something, speak with any of the elders or all of the elders immediately after the service. What if you disagree with what is said? Now, that's a good question because we all find ourselves in those places, don't we? Uh, My buddy Jimmy and I went to see Adam English over at Campbell debate Christopher Hitchens. I don't know if you know who Christopher Hitchens was. He now is recognizing, I, I, I think, the error of his thought. He was so atheist and so caustic in the way that he treated people. And I'm telling you, that night, it was all I could do to keep from standing up and just speaking out, you know. Because, but I didn't. I, you know, I said, well, that's, that's not what this is for. Uh, Adam is going to talk to him in my behalf. And, and, and so... If you disagree with someone, speak to an elder. And so what I'm saying specifically is we would ask you not to interrupt the preacher, but rather to save your question for later. And so if you disagree uh, with what is said, that's not necessarily... Nobody's saying you've got to agree with every single thing that's said on Sunday morning. As Sean talks about, we talk about a lot. Some things are open hand, some things are closed hand. When we talk about primary doctrines of Scripture, they're closed hand. We talk about open-handed doctrines of Scripture or, or principles and, and, and teachings of Scripture. We may disagree on, on how the end times are going to be or, you know... Uh, modes of baptism, different things that we may disagree on that we keep in an open hand. And if you don't agree, that's, that's fine. In fact, the people of Berea were commended in the book of Acts. Why? Because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. Now, the only scriptures they have are the Old Testament. It's doubtful even one or two of the Gospels were in, in circulation at that point. Not even... Uh, None of the letters of Paul or, or Peter were in circulation. And so Paul and his guys came in and they taught and, and they, they were going to the Old Testament saying, wait a minute, let me, let me check this out. That's a good thing. You're, you're called to do that. You are absolutely supposed to do it. Uh, and, and if you feel that someone is teaching something untrue on Sunday mornings or even in the wrong spirit, we have a procedure in place to deal with your Concerns, and that is to talk to the elders. Turn over to Ephesians 4, if you would. I want us to think for just a few minutes about the role of the elders in the church with regard to teaching the truth. And this is an opportunity for all of us to learn. Now, look, I'm going to say some things today that, I, I, I honestly, I wouldn't typically say. And it, it, it may say, if you're not... If you're upset with me for some other reason, this is going to sound arrogant. I hope it doesn't. But if you've got something already, you know, that's in your crawl about me, you're going to say, well, that is one arrogant. I wish I could, you know, I w- if I were not the primary guy who's up here, and Sean's up here a lot, and, and his teaching is, 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 is as good as it gets, and I would say to everybody who was here last week or this week, 
You won't meet five people in your life. You won't know five people in your life, maybe less, that know the word better than Sean knows. Um, So, but I am the one that's up here a lot, and so consequently it feels a little awkward, but I think it's, I'm just saying what Scripture indicates about this role of teaching on Sunday mornings. Uh, This passage in Ephesians 4 is one of the most important New Testament texts with regard to the structure and the purpose, the design of the church, the way it's supposed to function. We'll begin in verse 11, but before we go there, look back to the beginning of the chapter. These verses are not on the screen, so you're going to be just looking in there. Look at verses 4 to 6 in particular. Is there a word that sticks out to you in uh, those verses? One, you're brilliant Bible students all, I'm telling you. That's a tough one, isn't it? One, it's one body, one church, one spirit, one Lord. One, one church. Paul Paul is saying God is designed for us to be a unit, one church. But there are many gifts, according to verse 7, in this one body, this one church. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And at the very end, it's going to say that every single role that is designated in the church is important. And we absolutely cannot do without anybody. Everybody's got a role in the church. So let's look at verse 11. And he gave, this is Jesus giving to the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now stop right there. What do you notice about all of those gifts right here? They're teaching gifts, right? God has designed teachers. Jesus is the head of the church, and he has appointed teachers to lead his church. Who are these leaders? They're apostles, prophets, shepherds, and teachers. Now, more than anything else, these are teachers. And notice this, they are plural In a church singular, you're going to talk about this a lot more in home group this week. Acts 14, 23, uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas, I believe it's Barnabas at that point, maybe Silas, um, are appointing elders, plural, in every church. So there are a group, an elder, bishop, um, or overseer in some translations, and pastor are all used interchangeably. It's all the same office. You're, you're used, you see all three words used. The one that is least used in the New Testament is pastor. In fact, this is the only place it's in noun form is, is right here where it's translated shepherds in the ESV. And yet, it's funny, we call our, our church leaders pastors. Um, it fits the day for Quite a few centuries, the church leaders were known as bishops, which sort of had a little bit more of an authoritative kind of a um, a, a ring to it. But we're democratic, and we and, and we like pastor better. It just it's, and and it's a very important. Uh, sh- the idea of shepherd is a very important metaphor in Jesus talking about the way he leads his people. In a a plurality of elders. 
God has built-in protection against a charismatic individual who teaches false doctrine. Now, when I say charismatic, I'm talking about personality, a very winsome, a very good communicator. I'm not talking about charismatic theologically, one who speaks in tongues and has talks about gifts of healing and that type of thing. I'm talking about the personality more than that. So... Elders are there to protect about anybody kind of running away with doctrine by a force of personality. But at the same time, God has designated teachers to teach the word. He has gifted teachers to teach the word. And you know what any teacher who is worth his salt does? He studies. And he studies a great deal. And he doesn't study in isolation. He studies in community with other people, both living and dead. He's talking, he's thinking, not talking with the dead. He's thinking a lot about what dead people have said about Scripture, uh, but he's not talking about it. They, they don't look at the text in light of just strictly their own analytical abilities, nor do they understand the text in the light of the issues of the day, but rather they study 2,000 years of theological development and thought along with the original languages in which the Bible was written. And, 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 and then they pray that the Lord will bring them to the best understanding of a text, along with the best theological conclusions of the best teachers in all of church history. It is not just somebody sitting down and saying, you know what I think, I don't like the way this person said that, I'm just going to say this. It's not that at all. It's a great deal more to it. Um, in case you, you missed it, in a few weeks after June 2nd, which is a big day for us, and I'm going to talk about that at the end of the service, I'm going to be taking a two-month sabbatical. And you know what I'm going to be doing a lot of that time? Studying. I can't tell you how excited I am to have uninterrupted study. And all the stuff that we're thinking about now, the stuff we'll be thinking about in the fall, the church history class, which this really speaks to the importance of taking that class in the fall, we're going to ask you to be here for maybe three or four sessions, but most of it's going to be on video. You can, and it's going to be panel discussion. So once again, it's not done with one person say this is what happened. It's 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 interaction. It's uh, a lot of uh, different thought that has gone into this class and is going into it. Um, while my own personality and the present culture will ev- inevitably. Have, a, have some impact on how I understand and communicate Scripture. I, am, I can assure you that I am doing my absolute best to protect against rogue thoughts by surrounding myself with so many other thoughtful students and teachers of the Word. And, and Sean is doing the same thing. And if that's not enough to keep us in the right lanes, then the elders will step in and say, we have to make a correction here. Or, if it's bad enough, they'll remove me. It's that simple. In our day, we all tend to think we have an equal say about the Scripture, right? I mean, look, what I know about Scripture is just as good as what you know about Scripture. I went to Bible college. Can't tell you how many times I said that to seminary graduates. I know as much as you know. I can hang with you. Went to seminary. I'm thinking, well, this is good. I'm tweaking, you know, things are getting tweaked a little bit. Look, the, the further I, I, I get from seminary, the more I realize I learned during that time and how it shaped the way that I think. And, and I told Jim McLaughlin just a couple of weeks ago, 
I mean, look, it, it, it could be almost embarrassing to admit this, but I want to tell you in the last two to three years, things have coalesced in my mind about understanding Scripture in a way that I never dreamed. I mean, I thought I knew so much more. I understand way more than I used to, which of course leaves me at the very place that I don't know anything. So let's just pray and go home, you know? (laughs) Nothing more to say. Um, But we all tend to think we have the same right to truth. David Wells talked about this in his book, No Place for Truth, where he said, the American experiment in the early days would have been fertile grounds for revolution in any other country, European country. You know, but in America, because of the great disparity between the haves and the have-nots. But it's okay in America. You know why? Because we all know somebody that's made it. And so maybe I'll make it someday, you know? Let's just leave the system alone. I've got opportunity here. But in America, the place where we absolutely demand equality or demand our say is in truth, regard to truth. Truth is not what the theologian says, according to David Wells. It's what the majority says it is. And anybody who can articulate it in a particular way, and especially someone who is not anchored, that's one of the great dangers of the people that Sean listed last week who, who, who speak on television. Who do you think is telling them, you shouldn't be saying that? You think it's the assistant making three, four $400,000 a year? You think it's the board members who have watched other board members get pushed aside and ostracized when they dared go against? It's important that we be accountable. And God has designated that certain people be teachers. Look look at this. In Ephesians 4, Jesus is the one who gives the gifts to the church. And as an interesting side note, in Romans 12, it's the Father's plan. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it's the Spirit who gives the gifts. All three members of the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in giving these gifts. But we know them as spiritual gifts. That's what they're called as spirituals, actually, literally, in in 1 Corinthians 12. And they are indeed gifts of the Spirit. But notice, the Lord does not distribute the gifts equally. How does he distribute them? According to his plan. He gives each of us the gift that we need to take our place and fill the role that we were designed to fill in the body. Right down to the tendons, Ephesians is going to tell us. And teachers are given an extra measure of the Spirit with regard to understanding and proclaiming truth. Have you ever thought about that? I don't know that I've ever really put it in those words until this time. And you can understand how uncomfortable this is for me to be saying this. But teachers are given, according to Scripture, an extra measure of the Spirit with regard to understanding and proclaiming truth. But in America, where we have freedom of speech and freedom of ideas, we tend to think that we have an equal understanding of truth Because we have the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't say that in any other field of work. You wouldn't say, you know, I've got the Holy Spirit, so I'm just as good a surgeon as you are. Man, I'm, you know, I'm an internet wizard, and I know all about this, so step aside. But we feel that Scripture is different. We all have the Holy Spirit. That's true. And and the Holy Spirit... 
will will work in our hearts when we hear that which is untrue. But but let me ask you this. You ever had a time where you sense the Holy Spirit saying, what that guy's saying is wrong. Then five, ten years later, you agree with him wholeheartedly. <laughs> and people are saying about you, what that guy says is wrong. You know? It's a tricky thing. This Holy Spirit is a tricky thing when you're trying to claim I know because the Spirit is working in my life. Now, is it true that we all have, all who, who believe in Jesus and have the Spirit living in them have access to the? Absolutely it is. And for those who are willing to put in the work and study under the right conditions that the Lord's direction can know a great deal about Scripture. And as we've noted, we all have a stake in the truth and a responsibility to understand and protect the truth. One of the, Alice and I were talking about this this morning. You know, one of the the difficult things about the gospel is this. Before you hear the good news, you got to hear the bad news. And the bad news is that we're sinners and we've got no hope. And unless God intervenes in our lives, we are going to spend eternity apart from him in hell if we believe scripture. And we do. I didn't even need to qualify that. We're going to spend eternity in hell if, if, if God doesn't intervene. The good news is that he sent Jesus who died in our place. And in repentance of sin and belief in him, we are saved immediately. We don't have to rely on our good works. We don't have to hope that we're going to make it there one day. When he does that work in our hearts and lives, we're saved. Studying scripture is almost the same way. Almost all of us head off in a, in a wayward path of studying scripture sometimes and sometimes you have to say you know the way you're looking at scripture look anybody can pull a verse from here or there and make a point anybody it's why we talk about with the elders the importance to understand scripture not only not only to have biblical thinking but theological thinking as well what do you mean well let me just ask you this can you show me a verse in scripture that tells us that the Trinity is structured this way, one essence, three persons. Tell me, find, find a verse for me. You have to piece it together. You know how long it took the church to figure that out? Three and a half centuries. That's a long time. Three and a half centuries to get it right. And they were responding to people who had it wrong. And guess what? All the stuff that is said about the Trinity that is wrong today, it's the same stuff they were saying in 100, 200, A.D., 300, along through there. So <clears throat> thinking theologically takes time. And sometimes you, you have to come to grips with the fact that, wow, I've been looking at Scripture the wrong way. And so that's why God is designed for teachers to teach in that way. Um, If you're not learning at this church, then either the elders and teachers are not doing their job or the Holy Spirit is not working in your mind the same way that he is in others. So let me make three quick statements, even even though because of time I haven't fully supported these statements by any means. First of all, God has gifted men to teach. There is always more than a, that a teacher knows than is contained in what he says. Always. 
Second, you cannot learn as much as you should if you do not acknowledge God's design. If a teacher at grace says something that you disagree with, rather than automatically discounting what he, what he said, just ask yourself, wonder why he would say that. I, even if you say, I don't see it that way. I, I think I need to talk about this. Uh, it's hard to do in the spirit of our day. Uh, especially, you know, in, in, in the political climate of the day, the sports climate of the day. You're stupid. You're wrong. You're, yeah. you're a communist. You're a fascist. You know, whatever. And so, you know, it, it carries over. But it's absolutely crucial to your spiritual growth and understanding of the Scripture to say, maybe I need to think about it. Let me, wow, that's new to me. I, I need to explore that a little further. And then third, God has designated men to oversee the teaching ministry, the elders. In fact, this is the absolute first priority of the elders. Uh, this is their first responsibility. By a long shot. To teach truth and to protect against false doctrine. <clears throat> if you think the preacher is proclaiming something that is wrong, by all means, speak with the elder. But you might want to first dialogue. And now you know, don't come to me and say, you were wrong. Or else I'm going to say, yeah, well, whatever, let's go to lunch. Um, <clears throat> but if you say, I don't get that. I, in fact, I see it differently. I'm, I'm all about, let's dialogue, let's talk. Um. I'm just old enough, you know. In fact, the elders may come to me after this service and say, yeah, we got something to say, all right. Uh, but look, ask with a sincere heart why he said what he said so that you might get a better understanding on the, manner, on, on the matter. The worst sermons that I preach, and it's almost never, are the ones that I get up here and I tell you everything I know. It, you cannot imagine how much preparation goes into these sermons that are preached from up here. A lot more thought than you imagine. It's always more than what we're saying. None of that means that the, the speaker is superior to you or that he has some special secret knowledge. In fact, that's exactly one of the heresies that goes around, that I have a secret knowledge, and, and it's true about one of the most popular speakers that Sean mentioned last week, Joyce Meyer. She says, God gives me special revelation that even the writers of the scripture didn't understand. Now, that's, 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 big, that's bad stuff. That's heresy, in fact. And it's dangerous, just like he was saying last week. So the speaker is not superior to you. It does mean, though, in this whole design in Ephesians that God has gifted men to be teachers in the church. And almost certainly, just because the way their lives are structured and their hearts are geared, they know more about you do than Scripture and theology. Even though you might have a particular interest in a specific part, you know, you want to talk to me about the temple or you want to talk to me about, you know, uh, the Passover or something like that, you, you might smoke me on that. But overall... Our study has led us to a better understanding. And it's not in isolation. And you think, well, the elders of the church, all right, let's just extend this to the elders. Who do they think they are? You can't believe how in contact we are with the best thinkers of the day, the people that we understand see Scripture the way, generally the way that we do. And we learn from them, and they learn from us as well. So...
At the very least, teachers who are doing their job know a great deal more than you would realize. So ask God to give you a heart to trust the elders of the church to oversee the communication of truth to the body by those who stand in this place on Sunday mornings. So hopefully the rest of this is self-explanatory. Let's just look at this text real quickly. He gave the apostles. We don't believe the apostles. That gift is, and and that's all spelled out in home group this week. You'll, You'll talk about that. We don't believe apostles are in play today. He gave prophets, he gave evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of, of, of the body of the, of the church, of the body of Christ, I'm sorry, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head and to Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, it is equipped when each part is working properly, each part, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Every single person has a role. Every one of us has a role. And if you're not functioning according to the way God designed you and gifted you, then the body suffers. So, that's that. Now, where were we? Genesis, actually. Genesis 32, uh, to be exact. Fortunately, most of the time in this text is going to be spent on the last portion of the chapter. So let's ask the Lord, let's pray and ask the Lord to open our hearts to Scripture today and help us to focus our minds on on this most important story, this, this, this little piece of history where Jacob was wrestling with God. It's very important for us. Let's, let's pray. Well, Father... Uh, we long for the day. Keisha told us the storyline of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And it has redeemed people, Lord. A lot of bad stuff that happens in life. And we long for restoration. We long for the garden that was, that is as good as the Garden of Eden was and even better because of our recognition of what Jesus has done for us. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you for intervening in our lives and causing your Spirit to work in our hearts and to help us to understand truth. And Lord, we recognize that those who Uh, would not see it in the same way, may be on a journey, may, Lord, uh, being led uh, differently than, than, than us. But, Father, we pray that our hearts would, first of all, be humble and grateful for everything that you've done for us and never have a superior attitude of knowing something that some other people, that we, we don't want to be that way at all. 
But Lord, may we in community, in this community, and Father, even though I talk about theologians and pastors and elders, the truth is every single time I'm in home group, I learn from people in the body. And Lord, I pray that you would help us in community to understand your truth. Lord, even we, we think of, of salvation. We're so individually minded. We tend to think even of salvation. And even salvation, Lord, is often accomplished in community. One sows, one waters. God gives the increase. It's, it's, a, it's a group thing, Lord. It, it always is. So open our hearts to the truth of your word. And I pray that the congregation will be as those in Berea, even today, and they would search the scriptures to see if these things are true. In Jesus' name, amen. Title of today's message, what's left of it, is the God who often disguises his blessings. And this gets at the truth that Sean was talking about last week with regard to the prosperity gospel. Not because he talked about it last week, but because it's in the text. It, it speaks to this very thing. Uh, the prosperity gospel says that God wants us to be healthy and wealthy and wise. And if there's one thing that scripture teaches us and, and life experiences that this, if we are healthy and wealthy, we are very rarely wise. It very rarely is it true that we're wise at the same time because when things are going our way, we get full of ourselves. And we tend to think that we're being blessed because we deserve to be blessed. Why wouldn't God bless me? But in reality, weaknesses of all kinds, all kinds of weaknesses, lack of resources, poor health, personality quirks, even our personal struggles with sin keep us in touch with the gospel. All of our weaknesses keep us in touch with the gospel. So I, I'm, I'm not in any way when I say even our own personal struggles with sin are in any way God's fault, but they, are, they do exactly what they're designed to do, and that is to remind us that we're doomed apart from Christ. We have no hope apart from him. We're reminded in our weakness, that we are fallen and in need of a Savior. The more life goes our way, the more we're tempted to live without God, even though we may pay lip service to Him. It's human nature. Paul finally got this lesson in 2 Corinthians 12 when he said, you know, I, I've got this thorn. I've got this physical infirmity or emotional thing. I don't know what it was. It doesn't tell us, and I think there's a reason he doesn't tell us. And he said, I prayed three times and finally said, God said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Therefore, Paul said, I will rejoice in all kinds of weaknesses, infirmities, persecution, deprivation, which doesn't sound a lot like the prosperity gospel, like prosperity, like God is going to do all. Paul says, I'll do it because when I am weak, what? Then I am strong. Jacob is about to learn the benefit of God's blessings, his disguised blessings, <clears throat> through suffering in Genesis 32. Because of the time we've spent in Ephesians 4, I only have time to say by way of giving context <clears throat> that we find Jacob running from his uncle Laban, who could have killed him, and he's, he's heading to meet Esau, who very well might kill him. Um, Jacob had angered everyone in the family, it seems, except for Rebecca, and there's no indication that Rebecca's still alive at this point. 
So they all despise him. Everybody's mad at Jacob. And Jacob was alone. And he was in trouble. (laughs) Genesis 32 begins with him on his way to meet Esau. And the angels of God meet him. And the way that my mind works, I can hear Jacob saying, you know, as Inspector Clouseau would, Boys, boys, it's good to see you. (laughs) Because this was probably a fairly impressive array of God's power that Jacob saying, Jacob saying, yeah, I saw these 20 years ago coming in. I see you coming out. I know you're with me, God. When we belong to God through Jesus, his presence is always with us, isn't it? He said, didn't Jesus say, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's especially nice to know when we're facing unpleasant or even unsafe circumstances. Jacob was facing those kind of conditions right now because he had to know when he sent word down to Esau, that I'm coming back to the general area where you live. Not exactly where you live, but close enough. He, di- he didn't want Esau to find out. He knew what Esau's response would be. And his fears were realized. You know, he, he, I guess the angels disappeared. And, and now his servants come back and they say, Hey, by the way, not only is Esau coming to meet you, he's got 400 men with him. Now look, uh, those 400 men weren't coming to say hello. That was the size of a small army group militia. They, they, <clears throat> they were coming um, for unpleasant reasons. This was, the, this was the business end of the sword pointed at Jacob. And it drove Jacob to the Lord in humble prayer, acknowledging that he was unworthy of all the blessings that God had given to him. In, in addition to asking God for protection, he devised an attempt to assuage Esau's anger. And it was pretty, pretty wise for Jacob to do this. In the end, he knew that his only hope was in the Lord. If God didn't protect him, he wasn't going to have it. But he sent waves of groups to meet Esau, and each one had gifts. And, and it was a very generous gift that, that Jacob was saying to Esau, saying, look, I'm submissive to you. Probably even said, I messed up before Please accept these gifts. Um, And there's evidence that Jacob was much humbled by this point in his life, but there was a great deal more humility to come before he met Esau on that very night. When when you're facing a, a difficult task the next day, it's important that you get a good night's sleep, right? Not for most of us, we don't. I mean, it may be important, but, you know, you're just having trouble going to sleep thinking about what's coming up the next day. Uh, When we pick up the story in verse 22, uh, Laban is behind Jacob, Esau is in front of Jacob, and he has no avenue of escape. And is it not God who has cornered this slippery Jacob? Didn't he put him in this spot? Is it not God who has put you right where you are? No, it's all so. No, it's not. God has you right where he wants you. All alone at night, Jacob suddenly finds himself wrestling with a man who turns out to be God. Jacob knew that he was wrestling someone not of this world, but he didn't know for sure who it was at at first. Jacob and the man wrestled all night after an emotionally exhausting day. 
for Jacob. Just imagine that all night long. You know, we think of that and say, oh, yeah, well, that's No, just imagine yourself in that place. When you run out of the nervous energy over a five or six hour period, you're going to run out sooner or later if it's nonstop. As dawn broke, the man appears to be desperate to get away from him. And, he, and so he dislocates Jacob's hip. The Hebrew here allows for this to be a, a, a soft touch or a hammer blow. Either way, all of a sudden, Jacob realizes, I, I haven't been in control of this all night. I thought I was, but I'm not in control. And Jacob had only prevailed to this point because God allowed him to prevail. When a man, the man asked Jacob his name, it implied that the man was in charge. It's kind of the near ancient uh, east way, ancient near east way of, of demanding someone to say uncle. Say uncle, say uncle. You know, what's your name, boy? That's essentially what was happening here. A little later, when Jacob tried the reverse, the man didn't respond to him at all. When Jacob demanded a blessing, God said, God essentially changed his name from liar to may God strive for him. Though there's debate on whether the name is really focusing on Jacob striving or God striving on his behalf. One thing is for certain, though. Anything Jacob accomplished in this wrestling match was at God's discretion. In fact, anything that happened the next day when he... His plans were played out and people moved toward um, Esau was at God's discretion. In fact, God's greatest blessing to Jacob may have been before he even asked for it when he dislocated his hip. It's one of those disguised Blessing. How could it possibly be a blessing? Well, now this is only speculation, and speculation can get us into deep trouble because we 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 have this way of elevating our own speculation to the level of biblical truth. And when scripture doesn't speak to something, you can only go so far with it. But let's cautiously speculate, as scripture invites us to do in a lot of places. <clears throat> Jacob was headed to meet Esau. Earlier, Jacob had prayed not only for his own protection, but for that of his his family. And he did so on the basis of God's covenant promises that had been made to him. He had done his best to indicate to Esau that he was a changed man. And he was being generous at a level that really nobody would have expected in that day. Now he had wrestled with God who had dislocated his hip. And could it be... That is, Esau saw this wave, a wave after gift. You know, his heart softens a little bit. But he looks down the road and he sees this man who's barely able to function. He's barely able to walk. And he says, who is that? He said, that's Jacob. And his heart just melts. I mean, it's very possible. Look, here's the thing about the things that happen to us. How many times have you had something that's just really bad? And then years later you say, that was a good thing. It was hard. And I didn't understand it. And I was very hurt and very upset. But it ended up being a good thing. Sometimes God allows us to see his movements and understand his movements. And sometimes he doesn't. It's always best for us, though, to simply trust our lives to the God who loves us and who covenants us with us through his son, Jesus. 
Sean and I were trading uh, quotes earlier this week, and he shared one that Melissa had shared with him from Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Just think about where you are in your life right now. Is God truly that trustworthy? Yes, he is. Sometimes his blessings are disguised. Perhaps you are currently enjoying one of God's disguised blessings, even though it doesn't feel like a blessing at all. Or maybe, maybe you did everything right and everything's turned out wrong. Or maybe you're in a place that you feel like you fully deserve to be because, you know, you, you've messed up and I guess I get what I deserve. Here's good news for you either way. God relates to you through his grace. If, if God only got us out of jams that we didn't deserve to be in, we wouldn't get out of any jams, would we? I mean, when we really understand and recognize the truth of the gospel, every blessing that comes to us is, is from a gracious, loving God that we don't deserve. In fact, like Jacob, we just don't qualify. God delights in extending his mercy and grace to us, although there is no doubt there are consequences for sin. Above all, though, we are called to trust the gracious heart and the wise hand of our Father who blesses his people. Let's pray. I've mentioned the gospel uh, several times this morning, but really haven't defined what it means at, at its most basic level, which is that you need to know is what you need to know if you don't already know it. The gospel is the good news that even though we're all sinners incapable of doing anything that will qualify us for heaven, God made a way for us to be made right with him. Our sins demanded death, a death that results in separation from God for all eternity. But Jesus, who was God in the flesh, the Son of God, came to live a life in complete obedience to the law and was thus eligible to suffer God's wrath against sin and sinners in our stead. And what that just means is, is that Jesus took our place on the cross. When we repent of our sins, when we turn and we say, God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I'm so sorry. And we say, I believe that Jesus died for me. Then in that moment, God saves us. In that moment, everything changes. And all the good things we've been trying to do, all of a sudden, God makes possible through the power of the Holy Spirit and through Christ living in us. Does it mean we're perfect? My goodness, no. Remember, we're constantly being kept in touch with the gospel through weakness. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Would you do that this morning? Would you just say, Lord, I acknowledge I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus died for me. Father, do in our hearts what you will with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning...
before we go any further, we have, um, before we dismiss, we have two exciting announcements, and they involve two of our staff members. The first is that two weeks from now, we will formally ordain David Calvert um, to the gospel ministry. Now, that's assuming he passes the grueling examinations that we, you know, have prepared for him. It is pretty tough, actually, because of what we've talked about. It, when we ordain somebody, when we say you're, you're qualified, we designate you as qualified to serve as a minister ordained by Grace Community Church. We want to know that he knows his stuff, and David does. You, you can tell that by the way he leads worship. In fact, we'll talk about on that day, two, day, two weeks from now, June 2nd, um, <clears throat> why it is that even a worship leader is ordained into the ministry. If you've been paying any attention at all, you know that David is a great teacher of the word, not just when he preaches, but what he does for us during the worship time and the scripture. Uh, I mean, really wonderful. So what a great, exciting day that's going to be. And even though my sabbatical starts June 1, I'm going to be here on June 2nd and be a part of that and actually deliver the charge uh, to David. Now, announcement number two, and this is a happy and sad announcement all at the same time. Sean Cross has accepted a church planning residency with Portico Church in Arlington, Virginia. His goal, Sean and Melissa, have been desiring for a long time to plan a church, and recently they've honed in on Washington, D.C. is the place where God wants them to plant. And it doesn't mean they're leaving immediately. If that were the case, Sean would be up here giving this um, this <clears throat> um announcement. He, they're going to have to raise support for the residency that they'll have, which will be a six to 12 month residency in Virginia. And then for the first three years or so of the church plant. Now we're praying that they'll accomplish this fundraising in six or seven years. Um, but you know, hey, whatever, but <clears throat> ever how long it takes, you know, that's all right. If the Lord is slow, if he disguises his blessing, that's all right with us. Uh, we very much want to be a part of this new church in Washington, D.C. I mean, look, uh, it, 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 to the point that even some of you may pray about going with Sean and Melissa when they actually launch this church in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, they'll be at Portico Church in Virginia, and they'll be sending them out, but we're sending them out too. It's our heart. I know it's the, it's the heart of the elders, and I know it's the heart of everybody at Grace Community Church. That we have a major role in sending them to plant. This is a part of what God's called us to do. It's to take the gospel, to, to plant churches. and so That's what some of our missionaries around the world are doing. They're participating in that. And Sean, and, and I, although I don't know why anybody would think they need the gospel in Washington, D.C., other than that, you know, it's a good thing that... That he's doing it. So here's what we want to do. We want to ask Sean and Melissa to come and all the elders, both active and inactive, to come up. And we're going to lay hands on these guys. Jim McLaughlin is going to pray that God uh, works in there. And what a blessing these guys have been to us. So elders, if you would come forward. And I know what time it is. It is just right that after Jim prays, we're going to sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And uh, then we will be dismissed with the benediction. Uh, we love you guys and are so excited for you. Father, we come to you with uh, great excitement.
As always, we are absolutely awed and astounded by the things you do for us and through us. And we are overjoyed that you have called Sean and Melissa to plant a church in Washington, D.C. And we're also overwhelmed with grief because we're selfish and we will miss them. Yet we appreciate that you want us to be a part of this. As we think about Sean and Melissa going, we think about Sean's gift that you have given him that is so obvious to us. And your word tells us, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Father, you have given Sean beautiful feet to preach your good news. May you guide each step through this process. May you give us here at Grace excitement and wisdom and energy as we support them and guide them through your guidance with us. We just ask you to be with this family as they make this major transition in life, that you will protect them, that you will guard everything they do, and that you will guide them perfectly as we know you will because you are sovereign over all things. So we lift Sean and Melissa and their children up to you in this church plant. And, Lord, we want you to be glorified through this. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. As we go out this week, I pray that you would pray for Sean and Melissa as they prepare to go. That you would pray for the elders as we seek to lead this body of believers. That you would pray for believers around the world as uh, we, that all of us together as one universal church, church seek to love and worship God and to love and support each other and to spread the news of God, the good news, the gospel throughout the world. So this week, be in prayer and worship God and go in peace.